Welcome to The Alchemy of Things, a podcast diving deep into topics like skincare, holistic living, and the energy that connects us all. I'm your host, Brandy Searcy, founder and formulator of Rain Organica, where you'll find skincare you can take with you anywhere. How often do you check in with yourself to see what's causing stress in your daily life? And when you check in with yourself, do you ask if there are any things you can do to help alleviate the stress of a given situation? Like, is there anything you can do to change the situation somehow or in some way make you worry less about what's going on with it? For me, I've developed the habit or the practice of checking in with myself fairly routinely about what's causing stress. And this is just in an attempt to live more mindfully and intentionally. I just wanted to share what that looked like because, in fact, it's going to impact the podcast moving forward. So when I decided to start the podcast, I did it because I was already blogging. However, for me, and I'm not sure about you, but I'll ask the question, do you tend to read blogs or do you tend to listen to podcasts? For me, I would always opt for a podcast over a blog. So for that reason, I decided, oh, let me just try podcasting. And it, I love it. I mean, there's so much work that goes into each episode. It is essentially like writing a blog post and then also recording it. And there's editing on the back end because, of course, I make mistakes when I talk. So and doing all of that before it airs. The problem for me is there's something about that weekly schedule, something about hitting the deadline on Wednesday that is playing with my mind. And for that re and this is despite the fact that I have quite a few episodes already pre-recorded and already most of them pretty well polished and pretty much ready to air. But for some reason that weekly schedule is just playing with my mind. And I realized that I probably dove into this way too deep to begin with. Instead of trying a weekly podcast, I think I should have given myself more grace up front and tried publishing every other week. So with that, I'm taking a step back from the weekly schedule to every other week instead with bringing you the alchemy of things. And you'll hear because a number of these episodes are pre-recorded that I still make reference to in next week's episode. Just know when you hear that, that it actually means the episode in a couple of weeks. So we'll try this for a while just until I can get into a better mental state around that schedule and around that deadline, which is just really messing with me. I really think by giving my mind the space of that extra week between episodes that I'll be able to able to overcome the stress that's related to the podcast. And after after I become comfortable with this bi-weekly schedule, move back up into weekly posting without this added stress. So if you're not giving yourself the space when you're able, and yes, I realize we're not always able to control every situation that is causing stress in our lives. However, if you're able to control just one area that's creating stress in your life, what would that look like? Would you be willing to try it? Would you be willing to share it? You can always reach me at info at rainorganica.com. Okay, let's get into today's episode. 
The information shared in this podcast is in no way intended to replace or substitute for information received by a medical doctor, healthcare worker, holistic healthcare practitioner, functional medicine doctor, or any other type of medical professional. Today, we're talking about aromatherapy, specifically how aromatherapy helps your mind, body, and spirit. So what is aromatherapy? Simply defined, aromatherapy is the use of essential oils extracted from aromatic plants for their therapeutic benefits. Now, when I say it's the use of essential oils, that's something that's really only recent, as of the 10th century or so AD. Before that, as plants were used oftentimes for their aromatherapeutic properties, even before distillation was practiced as a way to harvest the essential oil from the plant. It was just the whole plant was used in the process of aromatherapy, or they practiced different ways of extracting the plant essence from the plant itself. And when I say plant here, I'm specifically talking about the leaves, the flowers, the flower buds, the flower petals, even the resin from some trees. So for instance, Palo Santo, frankincense, and myrrh are resins that are used in aromatherapy and where the uh, pettit grain is another one, where the essential oil is actually pulled from or extracted from the wood of the tree or the plant stem. In a larger sense, aromatherapy is the use of natural fragrance occurring in plants for their aromatherapy for their therapeutic benefits. Aromatherapy is one aspect of a holistic approach to wellness, and it helps connect you, body, mind, and soul. The term aromatherapy was actually coined in 1937 by the French chemist, René Maurice Gattafasse. He was documenting the healing properties of lavender and other essential oils. Plant essences have been in use by mankind for millennia to treat a variety of health conditions. They've also been used in sacred rituals and of course in hair care and skin care. So let's talk about the history of aromatherapy. Vases and scent pots containing plant essences were found and turned along with King Tut when his tomb was opened in 1922. And humans have been using natural plant elements for spiritual and medicinal purposes as early as 4500 BCE. Use of these essences, and that's just tracking back to as far as basically we found evidence for it. It's not to say they weren't in use prior to 4500 BC. Use of these essences expressed from the plant, freshly harvested herbs and dried plant matter wasn't limited to just one geographic location. So ancient and medieval cultures in Egypt and other regions of Africa, plus India, China, and Europe added these components in oils, balms, and resins for religious and medicinal use. Some of the earliest, most commonly used plants were lavender, cedar, rose, thyme, peppermint, myrrh, and frankincense. These oil extracts were used in burial preparations and treating a host of diseases and health conditions. Prior to the discovery of distillation as a way to extract the essential oils, which was discovered by the Persians in the 10th century, it was common to soak plant matter in oil or animal fat and then to strain off the plant mat 
the plant material, replacing it with fresh material every few days until the desired level of fragrance was achieved within that oil or animal fat. Another way of creating arom aromatherapy oils was to press the plant matter. So a heavy stone would be rolled through a long trough that was lined with the plant matter and then filled with a carrier oil, such as olive oil, so that the as that stone rolled along, pressing all of the flowers or the petals lining that trough and the olive oil came along with it, it would pull those natural essences and those natural fragrance compounds from the plant. Distillation of essential oils came about in the 10th century AD and an Arabian physician known as Avicenna experimented with the use of distillation to extract the natural essence of the plant. Along with the essential oils, floral hydrolats, which are also known as floral distillates and floral hydrosols, were produced during the distillation process. We talked about hydrolats and hydrosols and how they differ from floral waters in last week's episode. So if you didn't catch that, you might want to head back and give it a listen. Rose hydrosol was renowned for its healing properties in medieval Europe, and that was likely heightened by the marketing efforts of the new use of distillation in creating essential oils. So distillates are a byproduct of the essential oil production and a lot of distillate is created in relation to the amount of essential oil produced. And again, we, we talked about those numbers a little bit in last week's episode. Let's now talk about how, well, we're, okay, let's just launch into it. So during the Great Plague that swept through England between 1665 to 1666, cathedrals were fumigated with sulfur, hops, pepper, and frankincense. Incense was burned indoors and in the streets in an attempt to control the spread of the plague. Perfumed candles were burned in sick rooms and hospitals, and doctors even wore masks that looked like beaks. And inside those beaks was a blend of herbs and other ingredient, ingredients known as theriac. Theriac has a dark history going all the way back to the year 120 BC. Mithridates VI was the king of Pontus, and this was an ancient country that lies in a region of modern-day Turkey along the southern coast of the Black Sea. Like many rulers of his time, Mithridates VI worried about being assassinated by poisoning, so he sought a universal antidote to all poisons. He gathered a host of ingredients known to be antidotes to a variety of individual venoms and poisons, and he evaluated each of those ingredients by experimenting with them on condemned criminals. And then he also continued that experimentation by combining some of those ingredients as well. His results led to compounding a variety of herbs and plants into a single antidote that contained over 40 ingredients, and he took this daily as a prophylaxis to guard against any poisoning attempts. This concoction became known as Mithridatium. It was, Mithridatium was reformulated during Nero's reign. Of course, Nero is that infamous Roman ruler who couldn't stop the spread of, of Christianity during the decades immediately following Christ's death and resurrection, and, he, and Nero ruled Rome from 54 to 68 AD. Nero's physician, Andromachus, removed some of the ingredients from Mithridates' original formula, and he also added in some others. He gave this revised formula the name Galene, which means tranquility, and Galene became more widely known as Theriac. Theriac contained over 50 ingredients, including lavender buds, rose petals, iris root, likely oris iris, a very fragrant and popular root of iris that is used even now in perfumery. 
ginger, licorice, cinnamon, juniper, cardamom, and pepper were also some other herbs known for their fragrance and known for widely used as uh, treatments for and against disease. This concoction was placed into the bill or beak of the plague doctor mask and both myth mithridatium and theriac were commonly prescribed as internal remedies for those with the plague and they were also used as plasters which were applied three times a day in those who suffered skin boils due to the plague. While a great number of plants and their essential oils display antimicrobial activity, use of essential oils in treating ailments far surpasses just serving in an antimicrobial capacity. It's also worth mentioning that a few essential oils demonstrate an antimicrobial nature in clinical studies much more abundantly or much, much more significantly than they do in Petri dishes. And the likely reason for that is that these essential oils are actually stimulating our own immune systems. Now, this isn't surprising because nowadays it's common to use plants and, well, most commonly plants for as adaptogens. And it's a known thing that certain plants, I mean, this, is, this has been studied and there are uh, definitely papers in the scientific community on it, how some plants can upregulate or downregulate certain properties of our immune system and certain categories of our immune system. So our immune system is composed of T helper cells and also T suppressor cells, and certain plants and herbs can upregulate or downregulate those responses. And since essential oils come from plants, it's just not surprising that they, that some of them would display the same kind of adaptogen quality. Essential oils have been employed for treating asthma, high and low blood pressure, a variety of reproductive complaints. So essential oils can be used to prompt labor and they can also be used to regulate menstruation. And the use of essential oils continues beyond just treating the body. A number of essential oils have been used to treat mental health conditions ranging from fear and paranoia to hypersensitivity, impatience, irritability, panic, and even hysteria. Because of our sense of smell is part of our limbic system, and our limbic system is responsible for processing our emotions and forming memory. So fragrance can deeply impact our mood. Several studies have shown that essential oils can improve memory. And one study in particular that was conducted recently in 2017 showed that rosemary essential oil helped a group of teens with memorization tests. There have also been a number of studies looking at the EEG patterns of the brain according like and these um, these studies are recording the alpha, beta, theta, and delta waves within people's brains when they inhale different essential oils. You can find each of these studies linked in today's show notes. Plant essences have long been used in spiritual rituals, and is it any wonder? These plant essences have been defined as life force of the plant ebbing and flowing throughout the day in connection with the rhythm of nature, sunrise and sunset, and the progression of the seasons. As ceremony and ritual were intended to connect us more closely to the higher force of the universe, is it any wonder that essential oils are a way for mankind to feel more connected with the creator? Kurt Schnobolt points out that aromatherapy is able to help people realize health in a way that science alone cannot hope to achieve. And why is this? It's because aromatherapy accepts and integrates the phenomenon of the soul. Before we move on from this part of the conversation, I'd like to ask, 
One more question. Do you think plants are sentient? Robert Tisrand eloquently wrote of these plant essences. Essences are like the blood of a person. They are not the whole plant, but are whole organic substances in themselves. Like blood, they will die or lose their life force if they're not properly preserved. Like blood, they incorporate the characteristics of the body from which they came. And here he's talking about the plant from which they came. They're like the personality or spirit of the plant. The essence is the most ethereal and subtle part of the plant. And its therapeutic action takes place on a higher, more subtle level than that of the whole organic plant or its extract having in general a much more pronounced effect on the mind and emotions than herbal medicine. The magnificence of the universe truly cannot be overstated. If you'd like to try aromatherapy, now's a great time to reach for some of Rain Organicus products. You'll find a rose water mist for your hair and body, and it also makes a great linen spray right now at Rain Organica. And you can also pick up one of three body oils. These all natural blends each feature a blend of essential oils, and you can choose the one that most resonates with you. Lastly, if you already have a collection of essential oils and are just looking for a way to use them, you can pick up a terracotta disc diffuser at Rain Organica. Just add a few drops of your favorite essential oil or essential oil blend to that diffuser disc and then hang it in your car or other small space like a closet, or you can even set it inside a drawer to diffuse the fragrance over time. If you choose to set it inside a drawer, just make sure you don't set it necessarily on top of any of your clothes, just in case that essential oil decides to travel over to them. Now we're going to transition over into today's In Tune segment, which is also related to essential oils. The composition of an essential oil can vary greatly depending on where the region is the plant was grown, the time of day the plant was harvested, were the petals picked at first light, were the leaves gathered at dusk. The timing of the last thunderstorm even plays into the fragrance of the essential oil. Bulgarian lavender is highly coveted because of the particular climate and altitude where it's grown. The same is true of Bulgarian rose. And the composition of essential oil doesn't stop with the harvest. The conditions of the distillation are also important. The duration of the distillation will alter the composition of, this, of the essential oil. And when it alters the composition, it also alters the fragrance and even the health benefits. So you may sometimes see an essential oil labeled by its botanical name and then with the abbreviation CT, which stands for chemotype, and then something following it. An example of this is rosemary that is high in camphor. You would, also, you would often see it labeled rosemarinus, officinalis, CT, camphor, which just means it has more notes of camphor. Essential oils are just so sexy. They're much like wine with having terroir and so much subtlety going into the fragrance themselves. And because your skin is a semi-permeable barrier, that means that they can traverse your skin and affect you on a deeper level. Aromatherapy is a beautiful science and art something much more related to apothecary than necessarily true science. And it truly is beautiful. 
With that, we're wrapping up our conversation on essential oils. And here's a little sneak peek into next week's episode. Next week, we're starting a new series on holistic health. We're launching into a series that talks about energy healing, lymph flow, Pilates, and how all of that is related to the current pandemic. In next week's episode, we're taking a close look at Pilates. And Joseph Pilates, the founder of Pilates, actually created and refined and honed many of the exercises that are associated with Pilates during World War I. The reason this is important is because the last major pandemic happened during World War I, the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu ravaged the world from 1918 to 1920, and this particular flu was devastating in its own rights. I don't want to get into comparing one pandemic with another, so I won't, but the Spanish flu is attributed with being one of the major reasons for World War I coming to an end and for them signing the Peace Treaty of Versailles. The first cases of the Spanish flu or the Spanish flu itself really got to start in February 1918. And of course, it wasn't actually in Spain. It's known as the Spanish flu because Spain was one of the few countries in Europe that wasn't practicing censorship of their press. And so they were one of the few countries that reported on it. And because of that, it took on the name of Spanish flu. But reports and studies and historical evidence, I, I shouldn't say studies, I should say historical evidence, point to the Spanish flu actually starting right here in America. So, and again, documented timeline is February 1918, but in reality, there were likely cases as early as December of 1917. Now, why did I bring all this up? Well, the Treaty of Versailles was signed in November of 1918. So within about 10 months of knowing about this pandemic, the war ended. And the Spanish flu in particular had a knack for killing people between the ages of 20 and 40. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week. The reason that's important is because that's kind of the age group that Joe Pilates was working with while he was working with hospital patients on the Isle of Man. So next week is all about Pilates and its relationship to a pandemic and exactly why or some theories as to why it might have been so protective for the people that Joe was working with. The week after that, we're going to take a deep dive into lymph drainage and lymph flow. And then in week three, my good friend and acupuncturist, Dr. Leslie Deems, will be on the show to share some additional information, not necessarily maybe so much about lymph, but about energy healing, specifically acupuncture. So stay tuned to those episodes. I hope you're excited for those episodes. If you know somebody who might enjoy that upcoming series, would you be so kind as to share this with them? And if you have a quick second, would you consider leaving a review for the alchemy of things? Thank you so much for your time. Until next time.